This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim Thiessen and unfortunately today Tom couldn't join us due to illness but I have a guest with us, Melissa Johnson. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Melissa, you are the senior lecturer at Central Washington University where you teach critical studies and screenwriting at the Film and Video Studies program, am I correct? Yes. How did you get into like choosing film as a career because most people they they use film as something to take take them away from everyday life but you chose to include it <laughs> as your work i know it's it's crazy but i tell my students that if i could i would eat breathe sleep film and i almost <laughs> managed to do that uh, and they are gracious enough to laugh every time i say it uh, but i sort of came to film in a little bit of a roundabout way i ever since i was a kid i I felt very clear on what I was going to do with my life. I, I wanted to study history. I, um, the closer I got to college, the more clear that trajectory became as far as my interest in international affairs and working with the government and um, you know studying law and all these sorts of things. And I came to uh, film in a very sort of extracurricular way. I took a class in high school that was called cinema. And that really sparked an interest in something that had already been there uh, that I didn't quite realize was was a thing that you could do. So mm. I loved watching movies. I loved discussing movies. And I was very um, analytical. And, and I liked to think about sort of the deeper aspects of movies, but didn't really understand what it was that I was doing. And, and that class really opened opened a lot of things up for me. And in hindsight, changed every changed everything. Um, <laughs> when I went to college, I thought I'd love to take some more elective courses in film and sort of round out my education by taking these other courses that I enjoyed. And, and eventually, by the time I graduated from as my as an undergrad, I had taken every course film course that had been offered, I think, except for one, um, and ended up taking eight or nine classes, I believe, as an undergrad in film. And that really shifted the focus of the rest of my, you know, the rest of my academic and personal life. When I was looking at graduate school, it kind of came to this conflict of what I'm spending all of my time doing is reading film journals and watching films and writing about film. And, and I, had, I had a mentor in college that had said, why aren't you planning to get a master's um, focusing on film studies? Hmm. And uh, after a lot of sort of internal dialogue and internal <laughs> struggle of, of shifting the direction of where I thought my life was going to go, uh, I shifted over to film instead of history, and uh, at least at the graduate level. And everything has been that since, which I'm very grateful for. I am very happy that I was able to do history as an undergrad, very happy I was able to focus in on um, film studies as a graduate student, and that I'm able to teach that now. Uh, it's a, an incredible blessing, and I love I love my job. I love the opportunities that come with that. But I sort of came in at it sort of from the back door. Even, as, even through teaching, I started teaching in... Uh, the English department, teaching composition and um, literature, intro to literature. I taught in a number of other programs on campus before uh, before getting the opportunity to teach in film, which is where I wanted to be. And now um, that's primarily where my uh, where my teaching load is is in film. Hmm. Do you, Do you have any like memory of your 
earlier childhood where film was a big part of your your growing up or was it something that <clears throat> kind of grabbed you in high school when you took that uh, extra course uh yes and no um my my parents went through a period of time and we as kids teased them about the 1980s being the silent years and uh, <laughs> we we didn't watch a, we didn't watch a lot of things but i the things that we did watch i have I have very distinctive memories of going to the video store and renting a VHS player and renting the movies and watching those together. My grandmother was also really um, interested in movies. And when I would stay at her house, she would, she would often have movies recorded from, you know, from TV that she was saving to watch with me. And, and that was a lot of my earliest exposure to a lot of films that probably I shouldn't have been watching at that age, <laughs> but that's where I heard about The Godfather. And, and she would tell me things like, this is, this was, you know, this is a really good movie, or this was, you know, this is something that, you know, a lot of people have seen. And so that some of those early, early memories of watching things, and I remember wanting to talk about things. And I think that was something that was a culture that was fostered. And as I was growing up with rather, whether it was movies we watched or things we read, my parents would read to us and we would discuss those things and talk about the meanings. And the same, I feel like that was just a natural transition when I would watch movies. That's where my mind would go. So I do remember wanting to talk about talk about movies and talk about what was happening in them and and sort of not realizing that I was trying to analyze them. Uh, <laughs> and really, when I took the course in high school, I think it was something that affirmed an instinct that I already had, as well as opened up a lot of other possibilities that, oh, this is something you can do. Hmm. Uh, it was an English elective course. And uh, that's so that was also my avenue into that. I not realizing at that point in my life that this was something that people did all over the country, all over the world, that people were studying and getting degrees in film. For me, it was something that you did as an elective. It was something that you did through another field of study. And so really until I got further into my graduate studies, did I realize, oh, this is something that there are degree programs all over the world for and um, people are <laughs> people are studying this and, and are, you know, making movies. I also have a lot of fond memories of watching. I was very interested in watching um, like Turner Classic movies. They would play not only old films, but they would play uh, – featurettes, I suppose, on film. So I remember seeing things where film historians would be talking about different movies and different periods of film history and uh, different directors. I have I have a distinct memory of Martin Scorsese talking about Michael Powell and um, Emmerich Pressburger and their films. And mm. uh, those were things that I was exposed to um, watching, you know, Turner Classic movies late at night. So those, again, those were all little things that I think were seeds that were planted that I didn't quite know how to identify and know their impact on me until, um, until I really got into film study in college and in um, graduate school, was hmm. able to look back on that and see that there were all these things sort of uh, planted there <laughs> behind my very, my very, uh, determined focus on where I was going to be going in life. So <laughs> I seem to remember that you uh, mentioned on the Watching Directors podcast, I should mention that you are the wife of Joe Johnson, our previous guest, and you yes. two hosted the Watching the Directors podcast together. But I seem to remember that you are an avid Hitchcock fan. 
Oh, and yes. Am I correct in remembering that you wrote a thesis on Notorious? Uh, yeah, in part, yes. My master's uh, thesis project was on um, Notorious and Spellbound and Casablanca. So it was primarily mm. on uh, Ingrid Bergman was the focus and looking at uh, her portrayal and her the convergence of her uh personal and professional life with her film roles. Uh, but Hitchcock certainly played a really significant part in that because he was obviously the director of two of those films. Mm. And I did spend a lot of time in graduate school focusing, um, be actually beginning with a course I had taken as an undergraduate on uh, Hitchcock. I had seen some of his films previously. I knew that he was, I knew he was important when I took the class. Um, and that was something that I think really connected with me. I, it was, I was sort of an immediate, an immediate connection and immediate reaction to his, his mm. work and the themes in his films and his technique as a filmmaker, uh, that really, uh, really spoke to me. And, uh, yeah, I'm definitely, I, I, I would, say a fan for sure. And uh, beyond that, I've done a lot of uh, scholarship on, on his films. Mm. Every year I host a Hitchfest. Uh, we, we screen some of his films every year on his birthday. So, oh. you know, the in, obsession in, grows. Uh, in the university or? <laughs> uh, no, at my home, my home theater. Okay. <laughs> Do you like, what, what is it about Bergman that you focused on? Was it how her portrayal and how that differs from her public persona and the pri private persona or yeah i i mean a lot of it had to do with the sort of overlapping impact of both her filmic roles and her uh personal and professional persona much of the time in which um ingrid bergman worked was controlled by the studios and the studios controlled the controlled the personas of their performers. I mean, so they would groom certain actors to fill certain types of roles. So they needed mm. a dashing leading man. They would groom a dashing leading man and, you know, photograph him all around town with different leading ladies. And, you know, everything was geared towards that. If they needed an exotic, um, an exotic foreign actress, they would groom an exotic foreign actress. And uh, Ingrid Bergman is really fascinating because she didn't quite fit into any of the models that uh, that the studios attempted to construct her as. So this sort of innocent, um, you know, Swedish girl that comes to America, uh, they photographed her really early on in um, very naturalistic settings out on hay bales and very conservative and sort of innocent clothing, hmm. no makeup, well, makeup, but the illusion of no makeup <laughs> and um, <clears throat> many of the roles that she was er cast in early um, or at least that she was offered early on were intended to fit that persona. Uh, she quipped at later in her life that she went from saint to whore and back again. And I think that's a really good, um, a really good description of the tension throughout her career of the kinds of roles that she really fought to to play and the ways in which she um, performed them versus the um, the professional and public expectations that were put placed upon her. So, you know, for example, when she had her, you know, passion affair with uh, Roberta Rossellini, uh, her career uh, really tanked um, for a mm. while uh, because the audiences and the studios were really unsupportive of that conflicting 
I suppose, for lack of a better term, moral uh, perception of her uh, that didn't quite fit with the perception that had been built around her. But uh, she was incredibly talented and I think really strove to to play roles that interested her and were really complex and um, and intriguing. And her films with Alfred Hitchcock in particular allow, I think, for this very interesting um, play on both allowing her to play these roles that are really sort of empowering and um, reckless, but also working to, and my thesis was really about the sort of cinematic vendetta that takes place um, progressively through the course of these films to sort of realign her with this public, with the public expectation and the, Mm. um, the sort of ideological uh, framework that she didn't quite fit into. So you can see that throughout the films as, you know, from uh, Casablanca to Spellbound to Notorious, her characters undergo much um, more increasing um, stress and threat to life and um, coming up to the end of Notorious where she's literally on the brink of death, having been poisoned and being saved by, you know, Cary Grant, which is not not very many things are are more uh, emblematic of the studio <laughs> era than the dashing leading man coming to the rescue of the beautiful actress. So, mm. uh, but yeah, that was a lot of my focus, and I um, my interest in Hitchcock really uh, really grew out of uh, a sort of simultaneous interest in psychoanalytic film theory and feminist film theory. And I think that's something that's really fascinating to me about his films and continues to fascinate me, even um, even those that, even the films that are more dated and uh, don't, don't replay as well. <clears throat> There's still a level of fascination there and, and his playing with uh, ideas of, of gender and of, and again, his fasc- his own fascination with uh, psychoanalysis and how that plays out in his um, in his filmic style, as well as this, you know, the stories that he uh, gravitates towards, hmm. um, is very is very intriguing. When you're approaching a performance, how do you like? What kind of tools are you using? Because I find that I always found it difficult. I went to film studies myself, and I completed mm-hmm. a graduate degree. Okay. Um, but but I always I always found it difficult to engage in actors' performances. I always <laughs> found myself more thinking about the technical aspects of the movie making mm-hmm, and the director mm-hmm. and everything else. But the the actor, that was always some kind of a mystery to me uh, about how I, I could judge if it, either mm-hmm. it was good or bad, but I couldn't judge individual distinct elements <laughs> of the performance. But how do you like uh, approach an actor's performance? Yeah, well, I mean, an acting is so is so interesting because it's it's usually the most the most common way that that audiences come to a film. I mean, most most uh, audiences are connecting with an actor, even if they don't realize it. I mean, because we we most often gravitate towards character. Um, that's where we connect with. I mean, we mm. watch, the, we connect with the protagonist, we follow their story, and so the actor is really the gateway to that. You know, to whether we can connect with that character or whether we can't. So it's very interesting, but it's also, I think, one of the most subjective elements of filmmaking uh, because we all sort of connect on very different levels. I mean, my kids mm. give me a hard time about actors that I I just loathe to watch, and and it doesn't matter how 
critically um, revealed their performance is, if there's something about their performance or their style that bothers me, then I can never, I can't, I can't fully enjoy it. So there is a very subjective element to it, but it's also, um, I think the thing that I really, um, more and more so, um, all it's the, something that's always growing is that film is, is so layered. There are a number of ways to approach it. And so every time you watch a film, you can be watching it from a completely different perspective and mm. get something entirely new from it. And acting is very similar. I mean, so dependent on, you know, dependent on the film, dependent on sort of my focus of where, what I'm hoping to look for, where I want to go, I may look at um, different acting styles. I mean, certainly with my students, we'll discuss things like what kind of acting are they doing? What kind of performance style is, is this based on, you know, their sort of uh, persona or is this, um, are they character actors? Are they um, using um, the method? How are they shaping this character and what impact that has? And beyond that, sort of looking at the ways in which the performers interact with one another and interact with the, with the camera and the director. I mean, that's the most, um, I think that's the most intimate relationship on screen is that interaction between actor, other actor, director. I mean, how, mm. um, how those things interact with one another. So, and so the case of something like Ingmar or Ingrid Bergman, I would, really was interested in, first of all, how her performance style reflected the time in which uh, she was acting, uh, because the acting style that was popular during the 1940s and the 1950s is very different than the acting style that's popular now. Hmm. So um, much more emphasis on uh, melodrama, uh, much more emphasis on uh, kind of emotional performance, um, not in the sense of that tapping into your, you know, into that character's emotional state of mind, but sort of wearing your emotions on your sleeve, right? So hmm. there's a lot more of the sort of, you know, darling and the sweeping, um, you know, the sweeping sort of epic aspects of performance that is um, it, for audiences now may seem somewhat exaggerated, right? Because hmm. it's not what we're used to seeing in a more naturalistic um uh, what we might call quote unquote realistic acting that that shows now. So I was certainly interested in that um, and in film, other films from that era, looking at how that performance style um, is the actor able to create a convincing and, um, you know, and sympathetic character based on that performance style. Is it, does it become distracting? What does the actor do with that, with those limitations um, the extent of their um, of their use of that style versus their challenging of that style, perhaps. And Ingrid Bergman is uh, incredibly talented, and I think it's seen even more so when you look at many of her uh, her looking at her earliest films and her later films, and how those compare to sort of the peak of her career during the studio era, because. She does have a tremendous range, and I think that becomes even more intriguing to me that, to see how well she was able to really encapsulate that uh, that melodramatic style of acting of the studio era and yet was capable of doing so many different things with her performance. Hmm. Um, looking at more recent performances, I, I often question whether or not it fits the tone and the uh, world of the film. Um, so hmm. if the, you know, if the film is, if the film is more, um, 
more relaxed is more um, is made as you know more to to resemble real life in a documentary and the performance is is very stylized or is very melodramatic then that maybe doesn't fit with that with that context of that film and that will be something that I would I would be interested in analyzing um, I I'm intrigued by performers that are where a film has many different kinds of performances and different kinds of performers. Um, something like The Departed, uh, Martin Scorsese's film, is really mm -hmm. interesting to me because he, as a filmmaker, is able to utilize and create this ensemble of actors that use many use a lot of different styles of, of acting and how those are able to come together in a way that feels very uh, feels believable and works together really seamlessly. Uh, mm. Whereas you wouldn't quite expect sort of more of a persona actor and a method actor and a character actor and all these different, you know, all these different performance styles coming together in a way that works, um, mm. that works, but it does in, um, and I think largely because of the direction, uh, because of the actor's abilities to, to really, play off of each other's styles um, and create something really interesting. Mm. Differences in acting style, that is definitely something that is prevalent throughout Red mm -hmm. River. So we can kind of move on yeah, to, absolutely. to the Western film. Um, and what what is the, the Western as a genre for you? Do you have any like... Um, do you have <laughs> any type of um, markers that you need for it to feel as a Western? Well, I mean, significantly, it's really, it's the only uh, genre that's named for its location. I mean, and, hmm. and that's really a key component. I mean, we, you can make a comedy, um, in the West. You can make a comedy in a city. You can make a comedy in space, but a Western requires the West. And I think that that's something that's really, um, in, that's really significant about it. Um, and that it is, I mean, it's the quintessential American genre. I mean, hmm. uh, it's, all about the conquering of place and the conflict between sort of nature, man and man versus nature, which is certainly something that is a theme throughout. It has a much longer history before American Westerns um, popularized that. But I think that as far as the themes of specifically looking at the Western United States and Red River is no exception. I mean, it's it's a very difficult film, um, which is interesting uh, for me about Hawks is that he creates this, um, he creates a tone of the Western that really shifts away from the us versus them of the sort of Native Americans and the settlers, um, even though there is certainly a presence within the film. Mm -hmm. And I think for Hawks, it was more interesting to look at how how these care, what the land and what the wildness of that land uh, both provided as far as opportunity and identity and success, as well as what it asked and what it took from the characters. So, I mean, Red River is a really great example of that because John Wayne's character goes through this transition um, and, and the film doesn't of require him to be fully heroic um, or fully villainous, which is something that's really intriguing, particularly of that period of time um, hmm. that he's not a very, you know, he's not a very good person <laughs> for lack <laughs> of a better description, even um, really early on in the film, the only real glimpse that we see of his, of any sort of deeper 
moral character or moral compass is his, you know, that his companion that's been, we know has been with him for years. Um, the really brief romance that we see, um, at least dissolving, we are aware existed, um, and that he allows this young boy to stay with him. Um, but those are not developed fully because the focus really, I think of the Western and where, um, where Hawks really understood the Western is that is really more about, um, really more about that conflict between, um, nature and man or, you know, humans, right? Hmm. That, uh, and these were really amazing scenes in, in Red River with the cattle, uh, the cattle stampeding, uh, the cattle, I mean, that, that the smallest things, right? The man stealing sugar could completely, uh, derail everything, right? Because <laughs> nature is so unpredictable that the mm. rain can come, that this, and there's so many references to that throughout. I mean, even later in the film where, you know, uh, Matthew falls in love and, um, and John Wayne's character comes back and says, when did you fall in love with him? And she says in the rain, right? That there's all these mm. references to how commanding and how, uh, controlling nature is. So it both provides this opportunity for in 10 years, this man can go from a single cow to this massive, right? They say they started out with thousands of cows, hmm. right? Um, crossing over, you know, ca- crossing states and um, this massive wild terrain and um, undergoing, you know, native attacks and all of these things that, that the film really really highlights that what the core of what a western is um mm. that i mean and in different forms has morphed into the uh into those verily iconic characters from westerns the you know the cowboy the the horse rider the the sheriff the you know the outlaw all those things that mm. become archetypes of of western characters but really uh the characters are an extension of the setting. Um, and it's really about that, that setting and, um, the interplay, um, between, between characters and setting. Mm. It's like a, I feel that it's a very romantic Western in that it, Mm -hmm. it, the, the feeling of being under the open sky, that it's something to be desired, to be a real man and to be Mm -hmm. a trailblazer. Mm -hmm. And, it's more of a romance between man and nature than it is mm-hmm. of man and woman, because all the the relationship to female characters, those are, in my eyes, probably the weakest part of the film and something that feels skirted. But all of the um, how they treat the relationship between man and nature that I feel that is very much in the focus of this film. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, is especially telling here in Red River that um to consider whether or not we can remember the names of either of the two women that played relatively mm. significant roles in shaping the two um the two lead protagonists i mean that it really is about it really is about um that relationship between and and i think you said it really well that it's the kind of manhood right it's about masculinity yeah. it's about how that identity the that male identity is really linked to to the land. And again, that's something that I think is, is really, um, at least really, uh, shines in sort of an American context, that idea of conquering 
land of the, you know, the, the man, the male, um, power and prowess out in the land. I mean, John Wayne saying you can't come, right? The assumption that they can't bring hmm. a woman along, um, because this is really about the men and yeah. that, and coming down to the end of the film where we see, um, where we see, you know, Matthew's love chastising them on the ground <laughs> that they they can't see what everybody else can see that this really is a romance right that this is mm. a romance between these two men um who love each other and who love the land and who love that freedom that it um that it provides really that mm. uh, and the opportunity to i mean where when matthew returns with all of them and he doesn't know how to negotiate the money but it doesn't matter because he's already established himself as as a great man by being able to lead all these other men, by being able to uh, overcome all of these elements of nature um, to return to civilization such as it is, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, that he he returns there and, and then is told that, you know, after everything that you've overcome, you know, you have earned the right to to think over this, right. And to, hmm. um, get the best price, right. That the man is overly generous with his, with his offer of financial gain. And that really comes down to that Matthew had demonstrated that he was, he was a man in the greatest sense of the word within that, within the context of, um, certainly the ideology of that time, but within the context of the Western specifically, and, you know, I mean, what's the conflict before uh, John Wayne's characters really comes back to that same kind of tension, right? That that was something that was now stolen from him. Hmm. He doesn't get to be the one that comes through it and overcame betrayal and disappointment and, you know, stampedes and everything else. Um, he trails along behind, right? Hmm. And I, and again, I think that's incredibly significant to the conflict between those two characters and certainly um Dunson's conflict with uh why does he want to why does he want to kill uh Matthew and not kill Matthew right um, <laughs> that uh really is rooted in that we were talking earlier about what makes a western a western and many of the elements in the film like the journey west and the cattle driving and the cowboys and how mm. the landscape is very rural and rugged um mm -hmm. and the building of the railroad even all these are like elements um that we always look for in a western but i feel that in this film howard hawks he spends the first like 20 minutes setting up the film this is a western setting up the story but then after that he uses whatever he can to like subvert our expectation <laughs> for that even setting Dunson up as a good character in the beginning and then mm -hmm. he turns that on his heels and we mm -hmm. we're, we're used to watching Wayne as this tough always someone on the side of justice mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. this is a part where he he my my feeling on John Wayne is that he's always been someone I disliked so seeing him <laughs> as a dislikable character that really works for Red River's benefit for me <laughs> yes certainly I you know it's funny that you say that I I've never been a huge fan of John Wayne although I've seen a number of his films my grandma was a big fan and I remember her recording them and westerns were were harder for me I think to connect to um hmm. and so 
as a genre doesn't hold didn't hold a tremendous appeal to me and john wayne as a performer um was never i was never tremendously drawn towards him uh but when i began looking at howard hawks's films and to a degree watching the watching the westerns uh rewatching them somewhat reluctantly and i i really i really enjoy Hawks's take on the Western because he is somewhat subversive. I mean, in the one hand, he's a very quintessential studio director. You know, he is able to he's able to direct um, almost any genre. Uh, he's you know he toes the line as far as the sort of expectations and uh, working within the production code and all that. But at the same time, he still has this drive to tell the stories he wants to tell and isn't afraid to cast Wayne as this as really an unlikable character that more eventually evolves into, into the villain of the film. Hmm. I mean, that he's hunting our hero. Um, he's, you know, killing people. Um, I watched the, uh, I watched the film most recently with my son, uh, who's 12. And at the end where he says, you know, we lost, we've lost this many men already. And my Hmm. son turns me and goes lost he killed them, you know, so there's this sense of the real gravity of that. He's, this isn't, you know, this isn't kill or be killed. This isn't, you know, out in the wilds, you know, fighting the natives and and not being able to overcome language barriers or anything else. This is just, you know, you stole sugar. We lost a few cattle and now I'm going to whip you. Now I'm going to kill you. Um, Hmm. You've done something I don't like. You're here on my, you know, on land that was not mine that I'm now claiming for myself, so I'll kill you. So it's really fascinating to see what Hawks is able to do. And the thing that I was really struck with, and as we were talking about performance earlier, is Hawks' ability to get such a complex and interesting performance out of John Wayne, who up until this point was really... um, was quite successful playing this very specific persona, um, hmm. you know, that he played John Wayne really well. Uh, there's um, the stagecoach sort of a lore. Persona. Yeah, exactly. And there's this role, there's a lore about John Ford commenting after seeing Red River that he had no idea that the, that Wayne could act, hmm. um, you know, that, and was what, um, at least sort of in legend was what led him to casting him in the searchers where um, if we think that he's a villain in red river is nothing compared to what he is in and how um, at least how imperfect his character is in the searchers. So mm. I think there's a really interesting uh, change here in red river where Hawks is able to uh, recast and to really draw a performance out of Wayne that audiences certainly hadn't seen before. Uh, and that was some, again, was largely subversive because we expect early on, like you said, those first 20 minutes really up until he meets Matthew, where mm-hmm. I think we have this idea of him being the sort of conquering um, settler that's going to create this beautiful ranch. He's going to raise this kid on his, as a son. We're going to see that, progression, right? We're going to see him teaching him more life lessons like he did Mm. with knowing when the man was going to shoot. And we're going to see all these things unfold and him find success here in the West. And instead we get the passage, all this, all the romanticism that, that uh, Dunson had established and that Hawks had established early on about what, who Dunson was or who Dunson is and is going to be. 
Hawks doesn't show us any of that in the film. Instead, we jump past all of that to the film's presence where present where um, now Matt has grown and we see Montgomery Clift in the role. And that really is the beginning of the end for Dunson's character, which is very interesting. Um, and oh, I caught, uh, just to cut you off there, I caught, I caught an interesting thing on my last watch of the film, because in Westerns, a general like rule is that the bad guys there wear black hats and the good guys mm-hmm. wear white hats, right? Yes. So early in the first 20 minutes or so in the film, Dunson is actually wearing a white hat, but after mm-hmm. that, time jump forward he wears mm-hmm. a black hat throughout mm-hmm. the film and i just thought that was interesting in yes. the subversiveness of the character and how he both he plays with conventions keeping some but uh turning other and others on their heads visually it's such an interesting shift of where what again establishing or underscoring our expectations and what our shifting expectations should be even yeah. before his character begins to disintegrate and we recognize it narratively visually hawks has already used that really common association to tell us that this shift has taken place Hmm. um we haven't seen that happen but um we know we we can we get that little visual clue that it has right Mm -hmm. um and of course the casting i mean i the casting is so interesting here too i mean montgomery clift is just um it was one of my favorite actors um and it just does such a marvelous job and again that's such an really fascinating tension of both of character types and performance styles. I mean, John Wayne had built his career playing an archetype um, and playing a persona, you know, performing a persona, whereas Montgomery Cliff really um, was instrumental in establishing method acting within film. And so he has such a, a distinctive or such a different style of acting than John Wayne. And they also, as characters, are so diametrically different. I mean, so John Wayne's character that is um, is largely black and white, but is, is very sort of like, I'm claiming this land, I'll kill you. And there's no explanation for that. So the beginning part of the film where he says, get my Bible, and he reads over the man that he just that he just murdered, right? But hmm. there's there's no conflict in him of whether or not whether or not that is sort of there's an ethical there's not an ethical um conflict there excuse me so for dunson it makes perfect sense to to kill anything that's in his way to establish what he wants right and later in his dialogue about uh, wanting a son and all these things to pass on this legacy it's all very simplistic for him whereas for um and he's you know his career again was built on i mean he was the ultimate man's man, right? I mean, rugged, mm-hmm. ruthless, you know, um, knock the woman out, throw her over his shoulder and, and you know, take her to bed. And that sort of brute masculinity um, that is connected to the land was, um, was very much sort of not necessarily popularized with him, but at his peak, he embodied that more than any other, you know, arguably any other actor at the time, whereas Mm. Montgomery Cliff's performance is one that is introspective and it's, Mm -hmm. it's quiet and um, it's complex that he can both support Dunson out of loyalty and, and challenge his, his reasoning and his actions and ultimately Mm. taking that, that major risk of 
sort of telling him no and leaving him behind, right? I mean, so it's really intriguing to see that unfold as well within the context of the Western that, as we already noted, is really about masculinity and about masculine identity, right? How do we Hmm. become real men um, by being able to overcome the most challenging obstacle, right? The land Hmm. itself, nature itself, right? If we can command and control nature, then what else is there to stop us, right? Um, Hmm. And so then that interplay uh, between those two forms of men, uh, those two types of men and, and the two types of performance is so is so interesting within that context as well. It gives a it gives a different layer, um, which is something I really appreciate about Hawks' films is that um, they tend to be they tend to be quite subversive and quite complex, uh, even when they're confined within the limitations of of the studio era. Um, hmm. That the and those confines, he still manages to tell stories that are more layered or more interesting. And he still manages to play with those archetypes and those expectations um, mm. while still staying very true to, uh, to the genre and to, to the audience expectations. Mm. I completely agree about what you said with differences between Wayne's character and Cliff's characters. Like he's playing these two male figures up against one another, showing like one side of masculinity and then the other mm-hmm. side with Montgomery mm-hmm. Clift mm-hmm. that is the male stoic reliable just man who becomes this leader and sort of a father figure himself in the end mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. like this psychological battle between the two where you have the father and the son and the rivalry and the stubbornness and the need to prove himself and all of this like Shakespearean drama that is being <laughs> built up until it kind of confronts in the end uh sadly i do feel that the like sassy female character giving them a good talking to and simply not understanding what all the fuss is about that kind of undercuts everything that has uh gone before (laughs) (laughs) but that's not really what stays with you when the credits roll it's this this epic majestic setup and the central conflict Mm -hmm, between mm -hmm, matt mm -hmm. and dunson that we are left remembering yeah. Well, and it's fairly uh it's fairly typical of films from that era. I mean that the expectations particularly of the production code and what you know that there had there had there was required the sense of resolution that mm-hmm. reestablished or introduced a sense of of justice in some in some way. I mean, so the fact that the characters come together, I mean, I always I always imagine what would the film have been like if if Dunson had come and had been killed um, or had been arrested and taken away? Or what if he had managed to kill Matt and had then remained or had left as this, as a villainous character unchanged by these events? But Hmm. that, that ending couldn't have existed, at least not, um, at least not in a theatrical release at the time. So it's, it's quite typical to sort of, I mean, and I think the thing with Hawks is that as much as he's able to be subversive and he's, uh, his films are surprisingly progressive for the time, um, that there's still, there is still that element of that ending undermining that to a degree. I mean, because the film had been, although there were humor, there was humor um, in the human experience throughout the film, the end is really much more comedic um, and Mm. farcical. Like you say, the Shakespearean element of it that, 
where, you know, a Shakespearean comedy, no matter how much death and um, betrayal and, and tragedy has taken place, everything comes together as sort of like everything's laughed off or everybody gets married or everything, but everything <laughs> resolves in a way. And this follows that, that model Hmm. Um, very much so. I mean, that these characters have undergone all these things, but in one sort of, like you say, one sassy lady, you know, mothering them and telling them like it is, um, wakes them up and causes them to, you know, the sort of look at each other and metaphorical wink, everything's <laughs> going to be okay. Um, that is, is a little bit, uh, to a degree doesn't really fit with the rest of the film, but it certainly fits with the uh, with the era of filmmaking and those the expectations and where how film was expected to resolve itself, how these stories were expected to resolve itself. Um, hmm. Dunson couldn't have stayed a villain forever um, because the production codes wouldn't have allowed it. <laughs> I mean, he no. at least would it have supported the release of the film. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you though. What, what sticks with you is not those last few minutes of, of, uh, sort of farcical, um, interaction, but it's really, it really is a sweeping. I mean, when the, I think to the cattle stampeding and these amazing shots that, um, that Hawks was able to get, I mean, still using largely medium shots, or um, rather than close-ups, but when he, when the cattle are stampeding and you see, you can see the energy and the movement on screen, uh, the 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 fear that that creates, the writers that are writing through, and nothing, everything seems out of control. Um, hmm. Even the writing, um, the writers look like they don't really have control of their horses, even and. Um, and all of those those scenes and the massive numbers of cattle that then settle into the um, into that little valley once they finally get it under control. And later when we get those beautiful shots of the town where they don't have enough stables to how or corrals for all of the cattle. And, you know, Matt says, it's OK, there's. They're so tired, they'll stay anywhere, right? <laughs> and literally, we just get to see, I mean, and this isn't CGI. This isn't, you know, nothing's animated. We're not, they're not taking the images of 50 cattle and then, you know, digitally uh, duplicating that over and over and over again. This is just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cattle um, filling up this, um, filling up this land. And, you know, I think those are really the, the moments and and again those moments between you know Matt and Dunson um, are what are really what going to stick with an audience not hmm. not that last not those last uh, moments there that uh, may be inconsistent. Hmm. Have you this film was written by Borden Chase and Charles Schnee uh, based on uh, Borden Chase's original story, uh, the Blazing Guns on the Chrisholm Trail. Mm -hmm, uh, I think mm -hmm. that is included in the Criterion Collection. It edition. is, yes, yeah, yes. Uh, and in that ending, uh, Valens, he's the one that shoots Dunson dead uh, in Abilene, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Matt takes his body back to Texas to be buried on his ranch, and. Like you already said, uh, that probably couldn't have been made because of the uh, production error. Uh, but it does seem to fit the part mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. the father needs to die in order for the son <laughs> to grow up and literally yeah. thrive. Um, but we sort of get that he dies symbolically in that Dunstan's character, yes. he goes away and he's completely another 
person in the final minute of the mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and symbolically, we get to see him, the redesign of the of the brand, you know, to include Matt um, mm-hmm. and that sense of of Matt's, you know, it's a very, I mean, and it's a very, uh, even though this is the pe- the peak of this sort of happy ending of the film and the film's resolution, it's also, there's also an element of tragedy to it. I mean, because it is that metaphorical death of the father and the rising up of the son um, mm. that Matt's character, although Dunson sort of gives him this, right. And says, when we return, here's how things are going to be different <laughs> from, we already know that Dunson's not in control of that any longer. Yeah. Right. We already know that. So really, this is a moment of Matt allowing him to continue to have a voice to a degree. Right. I mean, that he's allowing his name to continue because Matt has already proven himself. He's already taken over. He's already overcome. And Mm -hmm. in a number of levels, I mean, one in just a quite quite a practical way, he left Dunson behind. He managed the men. He gained you know, earned their loyalty uh, and their respect and brought all this cattle here. He made mm. all of the money, right? He's the yeah. one who paid the men and he's the one who's going to return now to that ranch or to wherever he wants to go, having made a fortune off of this cattle, right? So mm. the reality of that is that Matt does not need Dunson any longer. He's become his own man. He's become um, a leader, and he's earned he's earned his own way now. Um, so it's a very and in that way, I think this sort of uh, comedic element that is on the surface, Hawks, I think, is still able to really kind of get in a little bit of the last emphasis on that there, because there underneath all of that really is a sense of do we really believe that this is Dunson, you know, being so mm-hmm. generous as to include him finally and he's earned it we already know he's earned it and not only has he earned it in dunson's eyes but he's earned it to the degree that he no longer needs dunson for that but yeah i mean it's interesting they allude to the possibility of you know a valance um killing dunson but ultimately again he's he's only wounded right and <laughs> um and we get the sense that they're gonna return and live happily ever after and um all of, you know, all of their dreams coming true in this new land, right? With mm. their new fortune based off of off of the land or based off of the cattle. Mm. So it's, it's definitely very interesting. And it's interesting to consider uh, the differences in what Hawks' original, uh, his original film was versus what was ultimately released um, in wide release to theaters. Because, and I believe that what you watched was a pre-release, Yes, Is the 133-minute version. Yeah, and, you know, I, it's interesting because it, I think, well, one, he substitutes narrative, the narration at the beginning of the, what we see in the theatrical release, replaces the opening sequence of the the book, um, the mm-hmm. book being opened and seeing, um, seeing the words there with uh, narration. Um, and he also, the ending is much shorter, so... Hawks himself is said to have preferred, um, you know, he preferred the theatrical release and that he liked the, um, he liked the narration, but he like he preferred the end, um, the extended mm. ending better. So 
And um, I think in a way there was that, again, he, I think, liked to sort of combine those things to get something that was really um, what he saw as the perfect version of, of it would have been more of an amalgam of, of the two. But it's interesting, um, it's interesting that, that a, the extension of that um, whole sequence at the end where, um, where the film shifts its focus to these two men and, and saying something that uh, Hawks hadn't really said it explicitly before in the film. I mean, which is something I think he's really quite, um, really quite good at in, um, in directing the dialogue is that the sort of roundabout way, right. I mean, and something that becomes really uh, associated with his film, with many of his films, that sort of rapid fire, quick witted hmm. um, naturalistic dialogue, the overlapping of dialogue um, in his direction. So that, so that actors are talking over each other. Um, and we get that in when uh, we have the time lapse and uh, we have um, we have Groot and Matt and Dunson all talking together and the the two men having the conversation and Groot mumbling on the other side. And it's all happening over overlapping, which is much more that's much more real um, how mm-hmm. how we talk in real life. And um, Hawks became really uh you know, really known for that in, you know, things like, um, you know, bringing a baby and his girl Friday, that rapid fire. Mm-hmm. And even though the pacing is much slower in his Westerns and in Red River in particular, it's much slower pacing. He still uses a lot of that um, implicit dialogue, right? I mean, that the characters are telling us and they're showing us, but really nobody's coming right out and saying anything directly. And Hmm. at the end of the film, then he really indulges in just really allowing those characters to be explicit. Right. I mean, and and largely through, you know, through the female character who's, you know, who says everything explicitly that we've all known already and whether or not it was necessary. I mean, I would argue it wasn't necessary. Um, But at the same time, I think it's, it's interesting to me that, um, that he enjoyed so much that, that extended discourse between the characters um, and uh, that extension of that rising conflict of mm. is Dunson going to get killed? Um, is he going to survive? Is he going to kill somebody else? Is he going to kill Matt? Mm. Um, and I, and I think that Hawks's direction allows for a level of suspense that even if, even as film scholars, if we know the film can't end any other way than it did, there's he still manages to build that tension and that suspense hmm. that we're I think as an audience we're surprised that oh that bullet hit the hit the dishes behind him and it didn't hit him hmm. um he's down on the ground did he hit him did he is he dead is he gonna get back up when he fights back we're not I think that he Hawks really drives that suspense so that even if we know empirically that it's not going to end in tragedy I think we still feel the tension of that possibility as we watch the film, which is a credit to, you know, it's a credit to the performers and a credit to Hawks' mm. performance that he's able to create that suspense, even if as an audience, we know there's going to be a happy resolution. Mm. But the, I do have to give credit to Wayne here because his performance, it has a real menace to it. And mm-hmm. I think that Ebert, he wrote that Dunson is both the hero and the villain in this, but he's, mm-hmm. in my eyes, he's hardly a hero in any, <laughs> any way in the film. But it really does come through in his performance just how much of 
a madman. He is just that mm-hmm. descent into like drunken madness. It's quite fascinating and somewhat enjoyable to watch how yeah. he he kind of goes down this dark hole further and further. And it definitely moves and cements my alliance with the Garth faction of the film. And I, I think I would have mm-hmm. had a lot more trouble with the film if it had stayed with Wayne's character and focused on his revenge mm-hmm. rather than staying true to Garth's more sympathetic storyline. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting the amount of screen time that uh, Dunson's um, romantic interest has at the beginning is it, there's not a tremendous amount more time screen time given to um, to Matt's uh, love interest in the film. And yet huh. I think that is one that feels more, uh, I don't know, that more believable. I mean, because we we see we know at least um, implicitly that Wayne hasn't known this other woman for very long either. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but she wants to leave with him. He doesn't want her to come. And we see this and it feels, it feels somewhat contrived. It feels very melodramatic. Um, and I, as an audience member, at least for me, I don't connect with her at all other than it providing um other than it providing sort of a backstory and motivation for Wayne's character that, you know, both that Dunson was capable of love or capable of having somebody love him, that he was willing to sacrifice his own interests and his own romantic, you know, romantic or physical needs in order for her to ensure her safety. But at the same time, you know, we also get that she dies, right? And that loss that, again, creates a backstory and motivation for his character. But otherwise, I don't think there's a real emotional connection that, that the audience is, has with her versus mm. the brief amount of time that we see, I mean, in what, in one night, in one, you know, one shootout under the moon, and <laughs> these two have fallen madly in love with one another and, and know everything they need to know um, in order to follow, you know, in order for her yeah. to follow him um, and try to save his life. So, and yet I think that there's a, there's a gravity created there and, and watching the film, um, subsequent times after the first time it felt, I felt a little bit like, why was, why was this first interact introduction of this woman, of a woman seemed very lazy and, um, disconnected, whereas the second was not, and it felt it felt believable and you get wrapped up in it and you don't think about the reality of them having met 10 minutes ago. Right. Mm. But I think that in, you know, further analysis, I think there's an element of intention to that, that Wayne's character, like you say, is never fully supposed to be the heroic figure. And I think the disconnect that we feel there to his interpersonal relationships, really the only one that we see having a real deep, loyalty and a deep connection to is Groot, who ultimately, when given the option, is forced to say, you were wrong. And he goes with Garth, right? So Hmm. that is really significant because the human connections we see and those the deep relationships we see and that we feel a connection to and that we feel are believable really are all connected to, to Matt. And I, and because his is the story that is the most complex and the most um it is the most heroic um for lack of a better term um and i agree with you i think it had the film had the film focused on dunson as the heroic figure throughout i don't think it would have had as much 
I don't think it would have worked as well. I don't think the film would have had as much um, longevity either because it would have been a very um, sort of empty empty story about a man who really isn't, other than him being the star of the film, doesn't really have any any characteristics that are very um, sympathetic um, and lasting. Whereas um, Garth undergoes a tremendous transformation and a tremendous story or, you know, character arc um, as he transforms and becomes this man of integrity of, you know, becomes a leader mm-hmm. rather than just sort of naming and claiming it. He really earns it and not just the, you know, not just the letter on the brand, but that he's earned it in the audience's eyes. He's earned it with, in the character's eyes. Um, you know, there's an interesting parallel, uh, uh, familiar imagery used when they bring all of the cattle to the town. And after, uh, after Matt has gotten the check and he's leaving and the, um, the businessman follows him out and all of Matt's men are standing around. And that whole composition there is very familiar from earlier when, um, when Dunson, um, brings all the men together and they're getting ready to start out on this, on this trip. And the men have all agreed to follow him, um, to follow Dunson. They're all committed. And yet there's this really, um, interesting difference in their performances early on in the film where there's a sense of suspicion and paranoia present. Whereas at the end of that, or later in the film, when, um, when Matt leaves the, the office and the men are all standing around, there's a sense of, uh, of loyalty and of protection, right? That they're mm-hmm. standing guard, not for themselves, but for Matt. And that's a really subtle and important, um, I think, bookmarking of these two stories, you know, of these two stories and how they, how they progressed, um, that the men who were suspicious and were defensive to protect themselves and their own interests and to protect themselves against Dunstan, Dunstan are now in reverse are willing to stay up all night standing guard to protect Matt. Um, and that's very telling as far as whose story was, whose story was really more important um, and whose, which character was more important um, from the eyes of the other supporting characters as well. Uh, because, and again, even this man that he just met is willing to, is willing to stand guard. Right. Yeah. And wants, wants to save him, wants to protect him knowing that he's an honorable character. We were talking about the the female character that Matt he meets earlier, uh, and the one I, I can't I can't really uh, remember what the name of the character is, which kind of <laughs> speaks to their their strength in the film. But I feel that there's even the romance of Matt is really perhaps cherry for Lance in that the rivalry that is built up between the two uh, it mm-hmm. never really. Mm-hmm. It never really comes to fruition, but it's kind of transmorphed into a friendship. And perhaps that's an aspect of the film I would have liked to see given more mm-hmm. screen times, just how how they came together more. Because Cherry, he seems to be, he's willing to like give up his life at the end, standing up yeah. against Dunson for Matt. And it's rather unnoticeable that morph where it goes into a friendship. I perhaps would have mm-hmm. liked to see that more 
distinct in the film, but it really is. I read uh, lots of like reviews and analysis on the film where they talk about this kind of homosexual relationship between the two. I don't know how much mm-hmm. there is in that, but there's definitely a strong male bonding going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's interesting because Westerns take numerous different forms and certainly female characters have a presence and certainly there are female archetypes within the Western genre, but Red River and a lot of, and a lot of Westerns, uh, just because of the nature of that migration, the nature of that move to the West, women were excluded from that in, in real life and in the filmic representations are excluded from it as well. And as we noted about masculinity, the film's really about these men and their interaction. Uh, it's easy to see a homosocial bond between characters, as you say, uh, with Valance and with Garth. Um, it's not explored to a certain extent as to why he is willing to die for Matt after being more of an antagonist toward Garth and Dunson early on in the film. But really, I think that says more about Garth's character development than it does about the specifics of those relationships. Because Garth's character, again... Why does Matt come to Dunson and stay with Dunson? It's out of necessity, right? I mean, there's where else is he going to go? Uh, Dunson keeps him there because why not? And he later tells us he wanted a son, wanted someone to leave his legacy too. And I think we can see that early on. But ultimately, what else is there to do in the situation where this young kid is here? And I think he sees a fight in him that he admires. But by the end of the film, we see the characters not together out of necessity, but by choice, uh, out of a deep-seated sense of loyalty and trust. And again, I think that that's more reflective of who Matt becomes as a character that everyone wants to follow, right? A character that everyone wants to get to know, um, right? Why does Tess, the woman he falls in love with, want to get to know him? Why does she want to talk to him? Because he's become a character that others are drawn to, that others feel a sense of connection to. Whereas Dunson's character is much flatter, at least at the first part of the film. Uh, he demands commitment, but he doesn't earn it. It earn any sort of loyalty or respect from his men. And I think that's really what's significant. And uh, in the relationship between Garth and Dunson, there's definitely a romantic element to it. But I think more than anything, it resembles a father-son relationship. Uh, Matt's character could have been anyone in the film, really. He didn't have to be a young boy at the start uh, in order to connect uh, or an or in order for the narrative to work. But adding that element of the generational gap is very significant, both to Dunstan's version of himself and his legacy and for Garth's transformation as he grows into a man, whereas Dunstan is on the decline of manhood as well as at the end of his life, you know, relatively speaking. So I really think it's more about the gen- that generational difference and divide and that father-son relationship seems much more prevalent than the homosocial or uh, homoerotic connections where, I mean, those elements are definitely present in other Westerns, where you can see that interplay of the, I don't want to say romantic, uh, but those emotional or romantic connections between the characters um, somewhat subversively. Whereas in Red River, I think it's much more about the father-son and the bond they they created through um, integrity and leadership. On the the Masters of Cinema disc, there is a... um a back-and-forth interview between Dan Sellett, the filmmaker, and Jamie Jamie Chrisley, um, the um, film reviewer, um, mm-hmm. a previous guest on our show, actually. And they talk about how Hawks, uh, like we said, he sets up the genre he's working in before he subverts it, and also that <laughs> many 
Western films, they kind of mourn the development of civilization. But in mm-hmm. this film, it almost represents a change for the better, at least yeah. morally, I think. And that's mm-hmm. that's kind of relates to what we were talking about now, how they are moving from this rural kind of rugged landscape over to civilization. And with that comes a change in how you treat your fellow men and what type of man do you need to be in this new world that we are going into? Oh, absolutely. I think it's interesting the amount of screen time that Dunson's romantic interest has at the beginning of the film. There's not a tremendous amount more screen time given to Matt's love interest in the film, yet that's the one that feels more believable. Because we know, at least implicitly, that Wayne hasn't known this woman for very long either, but she wants to leave with him. He doesn't want her to come, and it feels very contrived. It feels very melodramatic. And as an audience member, at least for me, I don't connect... I don't connect really with her at all, other than it providing a backstory and motivation for Wayne's character, both that Dunson was capable of love or capable of having someone love him, that he was willing to sacrifice his own interests or romantic needs for her in order to ensure her safety. Uh, At the same time, we also get that she dies, and that loss, uh, that again, creates a backstory and motivation to his character. Otherwise, I don't think there's a real emotional connection that the audience has with her versus the brief amount of time Uh, What, in one night, one shootout under the moon, and these characters have fallen in love and know everything they need to know in order for her to follow him and try to save his life? And yet there's a gravity created there. And in watching the film subsequent times, especially, uh, after the first time, I felt a little bit like, why this first interaction with a woman, why does it feel lazy, but the second doesn't? It feels believable, and you get wrapped up in it, and you don't think of the reality of them having just met 10 minutes ago. But I think with further analysis, there's an intention to that, in that Wayne's character, like you said, is never fully supposed to be the heroic character. And I think the distance we see with his interpersonal relationships, uh, really the only one we see having a real loyalty and real connection to him is Groot, who, when given the option and really forced, has to say, you were wrong. And he goes with Garth. So that's really significant because the human connections and the deep relationships we see and feel a connection to and feel are believable are all really connected to Matt, which his character is really the most complex and the most, well, heroic for lack of a better term. And I agree with you, had the film focused on Dunson as a heroic character throughout, I don't think it would have worked as well. And would it have had that same longevity because it would have been an empty story of a man who really isn't other than being the star of the film he doesn't really have any characteristics that are sympathetic and lasting. Whereas Garth undergoes a tremendous transformation and story arc uh, as he transforms into this man of integrity, becomes a leader rather than naming and claiming it. Um, beyond the letter on the brand, he's earned it in the audience's eyes uh, and in the character's eyes. Uh, you know that um, you know there's an interesting parallel of familiar imagery used, where they bring the cattle in, cattle to town, and the businessman brings a check to Matt, and he leaves the office, and all his men are standing there waiting for him. That whole image is very familiar from earlier in the film when Dunson brings all the men together, and they're getting ready to head off on this trip, and they're all committed. Uh, and they're committed to going. Yet there's this really interesting difference in their performances early on in the film where there's this fear and paranoia present. Whereas later in the film, when Matt leaves the office and all the men are standing around, there's a sense of loyalty and protection that all the men are standing guard, 
not for themselves, but for Matt. And that's a really subtle and important bookending of these two stories and how they progressed, that the men who were suspicious and defensive to protect themselves and their interests and to protect themselves from Dunson are now in the reverse, that they're willing to stay up all night, standing guard to protect Matt, which is really telling as to which story is more important and which character is more important um, in the film, even from the eyes of the supporting characters. And again, even this man he just met is willing to stand guard as well and wants to save him, wants to protect him, knowing he's an honorable character. Hmm. He is dealing with the like manifest destiny aspect of it all, <laughs> where yeah. white man, he has the right to take anything he wants. That's co- sort of the manifest destiny aspect. But Absolutely. He, and Dunsin, he's like, He's shooting Mexicans and Indians left and right and taking whatever land he pleases as long as it isn't a white man's land. And there's also the use of the Bible as almost a weapon and an excuse to Mm -hmm. enable the killing that Dunson is performing. I really think that serves as, yeah, not just a justification, but a form of penance. I mean, that he, you know, can kill somebody and then come back to the Bible um, and that makes everything okay, Um, sort of as the sort of confessional requirements, right? And he, you know, that's used throughout the first part of the film enough so that we become familiar with it. Whereas later in the film, a scene that is particularly potent for me and stands out to me is uh, after uh, we have several of his men leave uh, they don't want to go on. They escape, and he sends men after them. And when they return to their to their camp, and Wayne is uh, Dunson's attempting to hold them accountable for what's happened. Right? He's saying, you know, you um, you ha- you signed a commitment, right? You've agreed to f- see this through, and therefore mm-hmm. you had no right to leave. Um, and they're assuming that their deaths are imminent, right? They know he's going to kill them because that's what he's done to everybody else who has challenged him or has gotten in his way, right? Mm. And whereas, you know, early in the film when Dunson first says, you know, bring me my Bible after he shoots the first man um, who comes and and challenges him um, on his land, that that comes back later when the men say, go get your Bible. Um, And Mm. Instead of it feeling like this sort of justification, they really deliver that line and Hawks really frames it as this sort of emphasizing the irony of Dunson's use of the Bible, right? That hmm. simply reading the same verse over the people that he's murdered doesn't change the fact that he's murdering them, right? And that really comes through in that scene. And I mean, and I sort of get chills um, when they when the man delivers that line and he said, you know, uh, go get your Bible and then, you know, we know you're going to kill us. You know, and hmm. and again, I think that really underscores the uh, the villainous aspects, as I guess, if we want to use those sort of dichotomies um, of Dunson's character, that it at least it emphasizes his weakness as a character that Garth and even Groot and these other men are able to identify the lines as murky as they are in the West, right? As murky as they hmm. are in the Western, that there are still lines that you don't cross, right? That there are still lines that, you know, that you don't go, you know, for Dunstan, he wants to say, well, you can't go back on your word, right? But Mm. that there are things that are deeper than that, right? That the character's integrity and that sort of the the moral decision-making that the characters are coming to, right? Is it worth continuing to go forward knowing that they're all going to die? Or 
more specifically knowing that they're going to continue on under this man who's becoming more and more of a tyrant, is going more and more mad because of because of the land, because of uh, everything else that's happening, because of because of the drink. I mean, there are all these questions that are raised as far as why Dunson is going more and more mad. But regardless of the reasoning, he's still becoming more and more the kind of person that the men are afraid of. And the endeavor is seeming more and more futile, right? Hmm. Uh, until, you know, until uh, Garth says, no, you're not going to kill them. And then you see the other men rise up in support of him, hmm. that they're willing to risk their lives, you know, now not, I mean, before they weren't willing to risk their lives by continuing on this journey, but now they are because of, because of Garth's character, Right. Uh, because of who he is and because of who they are um, and recognizing, again, recognizing those lines um, that Dunson no longer recognizes or maybe never did, uh, because I don't think that Hawks, although he although he sets up the expectations and he sets up the elements of the genre very clearly at the beginning before he before he subverts them, mm-hmm. he still I don't think he still I don't think he presents a real full heroic uh, figure in Dunson. I think he no. allows for that. It's, it's still weak. It's still flat. Um, and it's still, it's still really ready to crumble, um, at mm-hmm. the beginning of the film. Um, and you know, maybe these other characters who at first glance seemed like they were just willing to go with whoever had the strength and power, uh, are, have undergone a transformation as well uh, hmm. and have been, have been shaped into, you know, men of, with more integrity. Hmm. Um, Especially considering Valence's character, he seems mm-hmm. like this happenstance um, gun for hire character, but in the end he really comes across as someone that has gone through a transformation and become loyal as we have been yeah. talking about. Yeah. And it's a very sort of quiet transformation. I mean, Hawks doesn't, he allows that to unfold sort of behind the scenes. I mean, Valance is a minor character within the film and yet he's, his presence and his development is all just sort of taking place behind the scenes in the background um, Mm. to where when it comes time for action, we still know who that character is, Mm. uh, which is really intriguing. I mean, Hawks used close-ups very minimally um, hoping that when he did use them, they would have the most emphasis um, and yet we, st- even his lack of close-ups that create, that traditionally creates that intimacy with characters, we still recognize Valance's character. We still see him maybe even subconsciously in the background. So mm-hmm. when he does rise up, it's not a surprise. We recognize that character. We know who that character is. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas even some of the characters like, um, Dunson's, uh, love interest at the beginning of the film who sort of shows up and disappears and there's no significant, you know, there's no emotional connection there. And yet his character still just sort of persists in the, you know, in the background um, and is continually present. And, and I think that his character arc mirrors to a great extent, Matt's character arc and even Dunson's in a, in a way um, that they, they're, he's coming to that same, turning point, so to speak, uh, Hmm. as a character. Um, and ultimately we could, I think we could see him unraveling like Dunson or becoming more like Matt and there, his character, 
undergoes a lot of the, I mean, obviously the same experiences and the same conflicts as those two characters. And, um, and in a few key points, we get to really see what choices characters making, which kind of mm. man he wants to become, mm. um, based on, based on those, those choices as, as sort of a background player, uh, to mm. a degree. You were talking about uh, the use of close-ups and Hawks. He's kind of known for being an invisible director in that mm-hmm. his technique and his style, it's really motivated by the pragmatism and the narrative, and it's not very ostentatious at all. Right. Uh, even though Russell Harlan's cinematography in this one is quite amazing, there's some beautiful imagery mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. compositions where you have so much background action and really some of the most quintessential, iconic Western imagery going on here. But he really has this lack of over-the-top camera style that do help marry some of the location footage. This is really an outdoor movie, but mm-hmm. there are some scenes which are shot on a set footage, like the, the campfire scenes. Mm-hmm. And this this kind of um, uh, lack of over-the-top camera style, it really helps marry this footage in a seamless way for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that was largely the style at the time, too. I mean, that was the, that was most popular at the time was... Invisible editing, invisible directing, and even the hmm. cinematography, um, particularly for something like a Western, the idea is that show the grandeur of the of the setting, um, but don't sort of interfere with that, right? I mean, so the idea yeah. that the camera um, would serve as, as observer and, I mean, certainly as narrator, but that the camera was still going to be it was still going to be comfortably stationed as a more of an observer, right? That the audience wasn't going to be aware. I mean, and Hawks was, um, was very clear on that, you know, that make the cuts between, you know, make the cuts on continuing action. Therefore Mm -hmm. the audience wasn't going to notice it. Right. So Mm -hmm. um, if you, if you have a medium shot of the, of the characters riding their horses cut to the long shot, while they're still riding the horses. So that way the action itself is still going to progress um, seamlessly. Right. Mm. And that was, again, I mean, I think Hawks is so fascinating as a studio director because he was such, I mean, he's, he's perfect uh, studio director. I mean, because he's, he does follow those rules, right? I mean, he's very practical as a director um, focusing again on sort of invisible editing and invisible directing, but at the same time, he still wants to tell the stories he wants to tell, and mm. he still finds and he finds a way to do that. And I think that that's something that's really intriguing is that although he avoids the close up, although he tries to be invisible as a director, you can still see his imprint um, and that that subversion in particular, right? Mm. Um, as I mean, as a director, and I think he's quite conservative in that way. I mean, and again, that's very reflective of the time mm-hmm. um, and what what most film, what most directors were doing um, were were was using that technique. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's interesting. I mean, he he was very practical, um, and as an individual, was very conservative politically and socially, and yet his films were often incredibly progressive and subversive um and red river isn't isn't really an exception i mean this tension between wayne's character which is is very sort of conservative socially and politically or from a political standpoint right i mean that the idea of 
the individual over, you know, over the populace. Um, the idea of, you know, the taking over of land and, um, as you said, the manifest destiny involved that the film sort of uh, questions and undermines in it to a large extent through um, Matt's character, which is much more progressive and liberal socially and politically, you know, the, the rights of the workers, um, the mm. populist view of the world, right? I mean, the sacrificing of himself, right? He's mm. the more honorable person. He has the law on his side or the moral law on his side at the end of the film. And yet he's willing to stand and be beaten. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, and those things are all very sort of um, liberal and progressive in thematically, which is so interesting to me about Hawks that, that despite his own sort of uh, conservative views, he still he still played with these stories that were um, – that challenged a lot of that, um, which is mm. interesting. But again, as a filmmaker or as a, excuse me, as a director, um, I think he's still drawn more to, um, a very, uh, practical perspective on filmmaking. Mm. I had a question about Hawks's filmography because it seems to me that in this film, at least he's battling against those common preconceptions of the Western genre. And, does he do that in several other of his other films? I've seen the typical, like his bringing up, uh, bringing up baby and his girl Friday, mm -hmm. and uh, I've seen the um, the Rio Bravo film, which has basically the similar character archetypes, even the same uh -huh. song as this one. Yes, but yes, but does he deal in the other genres he's working in, Scarface and so on? Is he like trying to battle against the genre limitations that he's in? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and Scarface is quite interesting because it was cited as being um, one of the, like being one of the final blows uh, that led to the production code really taking full effect. I mean, the production, mm. the Hayes office had been had been uh, present prior to the code taking full effect in 1933, but the, it didn't really have a presence and it was sort of there as this uh, optional um resource or as as a you know sort of um you could go in and get advice if you were interested in that and they would give you feedback but ultimately didn't have any kind of real power and control over the film industry but hmm. um with uh, with Scarface in particular and and several other films at the, around the same time um because it was seen as so brutal um it, the violence the the sexuality and the what was seen as the sort of glorification or at least the blatant uh, disregard of moral redemption within the film as, as sort of how it was critiqued um, is really credited as ensuring the stronghold of the production uh, code mm -hmm. of the Hayes office at the time, because that was sort of the, like the last, the breaking point of we really need an intervention here and some control over what is being produced because then people are going to go to this film and are going to think, oh, it's good to be a gangster and it's good to kill people. And those are the heroic characters. They don't undergo any sort of redemption. They don't um, they don't ha transform into something. They don't come to a point of uh, recognition of their flaws and uh, repent. They're just it's just brutality. Right. And I mean, that conversation has con that continues to persist. I mean, Wolf of Wall Street came out 
that was the same conversation that was being had, right? Of mm. is the portrayal of the portrayal of immorality, so to speak, or the portrayal of this sort of brutality and and extremities of care of these characters the same thing as condoning or of promoting it, and that's a question that is. Con- continued on throughout, um, certainly throughout American film. Hmm. Um, but Hawks, I think, you know, again, from that early, some of those earlier stages of his career was already pushing the boundaries of what the genre could do. Um, and say, and asking questions about the characters in the world that they, that they exist in, because Scarface makes much more sense as a care, as a film that doesn't call for the repentance of the character because the character would not have repented. Right. So mm. there's that, there's a really great tension there where he, he really pushes to the extreme of the, the boundaries of that, of that genre. And I think arguably he does that in other films as well, both, both really um, embodying the genre and at the same time contributing something really new to the genre. And I mean, and, and, there are so few studio filmmakers and even filmmakers today that are able to excel in so many different genres. I mean, Hawks was making, you know, he was making gangster films in his early career. Um, he's making screwball comedies um, and he's uh, making um, war films. He's making romance. He's making noir. He's making Westerns and he's excelling in all of them. And in many cases, he's defining or redefining those genres Hmm. and what our expectations are. So he creates these films that become, uh, become quintessential to the genre. And yet they really push the boundaries of, of what the genre is and can do, um, in one way or the other. I mean, and in the case of red river, I think where he, again, where he really pushes the boundaries of the genre is in the care through the characters, um, and how those characters, develop and um, resolve. Hmm. Whereas in other films, he's doing it in different ways. I mean, so you see something like gentlemen, gentlemen prefer blondes, which is just, it's a perfect, um, perfect example of that sort of romantic comedy musical amalgam of the time. And yet he is just sort of like, it is just relentless in, in subverting our expectations of what these characters are. I mean, to the, I mean, in the way that he, you know, takes the expect expectations of what Marilyn Monroe's character is supposed to be as the sort of ditzy, you know, overly sexualized blonde who just wants money. Um, and the brunette that's supposed to be the more stable and reasonable one, but Mm. she's, equally and maybe even arguably more interested in sex and fun and freedom than Marilyn Monroe's character is right um and taking these characters and and allowing them to pursue pursue the sort of financial and the social end that is makes the most sense and was deemed the most desirable for women right marriage and mm-hmm. still allowing them to be these sort of explosive, um, sexual autonomous figures was something that was, uh, really challenged, uh, what the genre was, what the genre was about and what film, filmmaking was about at the time. And mm-hmm. is another really great example. I mean, one of the things I love about, we were talking about Hitchcock earlier is his ability to play within the, 
within the limitations of the production code. So in getting films released in the United States and through Hollywood, then suddenly the films have to fit this, you know, have to fit within that expectation and within the rules of the production code in order to get the seal of approval and be released into the um, largely theater or studio owned theaters um, and to get the support of, you know, get the support of the studios. I mean, that they would, uh, they would free, they would remove funding. They wouldn't distribute the films if they didn't, if they didn't get the approval of the Hayes office. Hmm. So, and something like gentlemen prefer blondes, for instance, I mean, he, Hawks is able to play with those by not ever saying anything directly. He's able to say so much more than, um, than films, other films of the same time that were, um, that were now that sort of were forced to be much more conservative, um, in their portrayal of characters. And he, he was quite skilled at being able to, um, play with that. I mean, using the camera to play with that, uh, you know, framing, uh, you know, Rosalind Russell, um, framing her the way he does, uh, with the, um, with all of the Olympic male swimmers, um, you know, and the obvious implication here is that she's out here to ogle and to choose who she wants to have, you mm-hmm. know, flings with. Right. And we know this as an audience, even though he manages to shroud it within, within the, uh, within the framework of that genre and of the production codes, uh, standards. And I think, you know, he does that again and again and again, um, challenging what, what we would expect of, of a romance, what we would expect of a comedy, both establishing and affirming that genre and then playing with it, um, in really, um, varying degrees, um, sometimes Hmm. very subtly and sometimes more overtly. Uh, and again, by doing so, he, both maintains his place as and maintains the place of those films as being significant films within the genre, but often he manages to sort of redefine and to establish his sort of take on that genre as a new, as this sort of new standard to go by. Mm. Um, I mean, consider like uh, the big sleep and to have and have not, which are, you know, is quintessential film noirs, um, from Hollywood, you know, Hollywood film noir. And again, he plays with a lot of those expectations. And I most significantly, I think making the blonde femme, the heroic character, you know, that she, Mm -hmm. you know, Lauren Bacall's character becomes the character that we sympathize with. And she is the, she's the romantic um, destined partner for Humphrey Bogart's character in those films, which again, plays with those expectations that she gets to be both the sort of deviant, um, sexy temptress, temptress and the, the blonde, you know, uh, femme. And she also gets to be the, uh, the leading lady and, Mm. uh, Hawks, I think was really brilliant at brilliant at working within the system. And being both being both practical and conservative and subversive and progressive, um, which is is not an easy is not an easy task to 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 manage. <laughs> mm. This uh, Red River film it was filmed in 1946, but wasn't released until 48. And as we mentioned before, there are two versions of this, and the shorter one they removed the the book style transition and kind of tightened the pace of the film. Um, mm-hmm. But I do have to agree with Hawks that I f- did find some of the, the inserts of the book 
Uh, yes. It was quite difficult to read and very awkward where I didn't quite know what what section of this page am I supposed to be reading now. Uh, <laughs> some In some places it is highlighted with... Um, with some sort of extra lighting but yes. most often than not i'm i find myself like scrambling through the text trying to get everything yeah uh, well and it's this interesting transition of filmmaking i mean from a historical perspective that in the same way that narration now sort of becomes the fallback we don't know how mm -hmm. to transition from scene to scene let's put a narrator in there right i mean that mm -hmm. the that sort of book um the use of the book as a transitional uh piece or of uh using uh, text as a transition was is something that was a carryover really from the silent era where you re where there was required it was necessary to have dialogue cards and um, transitional cards that would tell us where we were going in the film because we couldn't hear the characters speaking um, and telling us these things right mm -hmm. um, and that carries over into into the sound era because we have a continuation of that use of well, if we don't know how to get from this scene to this scene, we can simply put up uh, text, right? That tells mm -hmm. us the back, you know, introduces the film or tells us the backstory or tells us what's happening here or that we've moved to a different location. So relying on that. And I think that um, in the context of this film, it also links itself to the book, which is, again, a very common uh, filming and narrative technique when movies were based on film on books that were well known. Mm -hmm. So the book is well known. The audience knows it's based on a book. Let the incorporation of that into the actual film narrative to underscore that we're telling a story from a book, right? <laughs> we're telling this book <laughs> to you. And what you're seeing is just sort of the visual, you know, manifestation of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um and I and I also agree. I think the narr narration moves the story along a little faster, removing those inserts, um, the text inserts, keeps the pace moving a little bit faster. Um, although the film, I think, is, I think the film's narrative and the, uh, as a whole, is benefits from the slower pace. I mean, that it's more, I think, a methodical, um, introspective look at the West and as at the Western. Um, still the, I still feel like those inserts slow, definitely slow it down. Because, I mean, it's requiring, you know, it requires you as an audience that as you're experiencing a visual medium to stop and read a chapter from a book, right? Or to read this paragraph from a book. And um, and that that shift in the pacing is is distracting um, to a mm -hmm. degree. Um, so I definitely, I mean, I, I agree. I think there's a benefit to, to excluding that. Uh, although there's also, I think, an authenticity that's created with it at the beginning of the film versus the narration that's included later. Because it, including the book and the text at the beginning of the film, I think, lends a level of this actually happened. Hmm. Um, although narr the narrator is intended, I think, to to mirror that same that same um, intention um, mm -hmm. that the narrator is telling us a story that they that they witnessed or they've been they've been told yeah. in some form, right? I mean, and it, yeah, I mean, both of them are intended, I think, to add a level of authenticity and of mm -hmm. realism um, that these are real stories and real events um, that we are going to then experience. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think that, yeah, definitely throughout the film, it, it changes the pacing uh, in a way that I think is 
is definitely, it definitely feels like even if you read only the highlighted portions, you feel you're aware that you're missing something else. You're missing information. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas if, if the camera is only, if you're only reliant on the camera to shift the narrative and to transition and to, to exclude or include information, then we're, we're just sort of following along with that. We don't, we don't have time to recognize that we've lost information or we trust that if the, you know, if the film filming style is engaging enough, we, we trust that that information that we just lost, like the 10 years, 14 years that we lost um, in Red River, uh, that we trust that we don't need to know that information. Whereas if we see an entire page, an entire screen of text, and we're only supposed to focus on two or three words, we're, uh, we're much more directly aware that there's all this information here that was important enough to show on screen, but not important enough to highlight, right? Mm. Yeah, that's true. Um, before the the 133-minute version could be released, um, Howard Hawksey was sued by Howard Hughes. Yes. Um, claiming that the, the climatic scene between Dunstan and Matt, that was taken from the 43 film, The Outlaw, which Hawks had shot for Hughes. Yes. Um, have you seen The Outlaw? Is yes. there any truth in this? Or Well, you know, there are, uh, I think there's arguably similarities. Um, I think that Hughes was very litigious anyway. Um, and... Uh, I mean, Hawks ultimately didn't get uh, didn't get credit. At least he was uncredited on the release of the Outlaw mm -hmm. um, for his contribution. Um, the film was un I mean was under a lot of scrutiny uh, for uh, for a number of reasons. Largely, the promotion uh, promotional materials were under scrutiny. Uh, that um, it was deemed it was deemed to be you know too too salacious. The you know. Uh, the way the film was promoted, the posters and so forth, um, the actress was too busty, uh, that mm. didn't fit within the guidelines of the production code. So, I mean, the outlaw was under a lot of, uh, took a lot of hits when it was being made and when it was being released. And there was a tremendous animosity. I arguably shared animosity between the, um, Hughes and Hawks, but certainly, um, Hughes's view of, of Hawks, I think, uh, I, I don't think he had a tremendous amount of um, appreciation for him. Uh, and that, you know, was not uncommon for many of the people that he worked with, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. that Hughes worked with, not that Hawks worked with. But mm -hmm. um, there are definitely some similarities, although I, I think that uh, film, film like literature often um, is about sort of referencing and reimagining and playing off of already established things. So I would say that, uh, that there are critically, we could argue that there are some similarities, but we could also argue that there are similarities throughout, um, throughout almost every Western, yeah. um, in, you know, the final showdown is a, is a common trope of the Western, uh, that final battle and confrontation between, um, uh, between the two, the two character leading characters, right? The protagonist and the antagonist and, hmm. um, or that final, you know, showdown between the protagonist and the land, which serves as the antagonist. Um, hmm. so there, I think the similarities are similarities that could be drawn, um, between a number of different, uh, films of the same genre. And, um, certainly throughout, I think, um, several of Hawks's other films as well, where, you know, whether he's directly referencing himself or whether or not he's simply 
reimagining the same tropes and expectations uh, of the genre. Um, I'm not sure if we'll ever know fully. I mean, Hawks was uh, Hawks was fairly adamant that uh, that Hughes was sort of crazy and um, <laughs> that he that he hadn't ripped it off. You know, he hadn't ripped off the you know the film, but. Mm. Um, you know, whether we can ever know for sure is, you know, is a different story, I guess. <laughs> mm. uh, sadly, the the Masters of Cinema version disc, um, it only has the 133 minute version. I would have liked to seen the 127 minute version. Uh, so this is probably one of those cases where if you could only afford one or the <laughs> other, I would I would go for the Criterion version if you have a regionally Blu-ray right. player. But uh, I would uh, recommend picking up the Masters of Cinema version if you can for mm-hmm. the the interview between Salad and Chrisley, which is yes. uh, really quite good. It's uh, 15 minutes and they really go into a lot of aspects of the film. So, Yeah. Well, and they're both uh, both versions. I mean, and I think that's the thing I really, uh, really enjoy about both the Masters of Cinema's uh, library as well as Criterion's library is – the amount of uh, appreciation for film that it, mm-hmm. that goes into the creation of these, not only in the restoration and the presentation of the film itself, but the other elements that are included. I mean, that, you know, that sort of, for me, I remember the first time I, the first time that I got, a, saw a film um, from Criterion and realizing that it had commentaries by all these amazing, you know, film historians and film mm-hmm. critics and, the interviews and the um, all of these other sort of rich is this becomes a sort of time capsule, this artifact of a film history that surrounded the the specific film that you're watching, which is um, incredibly rewarding. Whether you're getting the Masters of Cinema or the Criterion, but mm-hmm. uh, the Criterion does have both versions, which yeah. is sort of a nice bonus. It is, um, and also the uh, the humongous uh, book or booklet. Yes. That is yes. included. So, but the uh, the Masters of Cinema, the transfer, I think it's the same that Criterion used. Mm-hmm, it looks mm-hmm. incredible in the Blu-ray format. So yeah, it does. Highly recommendable. Any either way you go. Yes. Um, so uh, Melissa, I think that's everything I had on schedule for today. Okay. Um, Great. But thank you so much for a very entertaining and enlightening conversation <laughs> with you. Great. Very very fun. So good. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Great. Um, is there any? Do you do any sort of blogging or any? Do you have any sort of internet persona or? Um, my my internet persona is you know fairly limited to you know my Facebook page. I don't have a web page. I I should have I should have some sort of presence. But I'm I'm always happy to communicate with people via email um, and to share you know to share ideas and um, creative work. I I tend to. I mean, I think because of the nature of my my job and I work, I work so much that I, I feel like I don't ever, I don't ever mm-hmm. take the time to then transition any of that into, um, into one space. <laughs> no. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm happy to, I'm happy to, to talk to people. I, I, uh, I, I love, um, I love continuing the conversation in whatever form it, it might take, uh, mm-hmm. with, with people that are listening. So you're welcome to give them my email contact information and, 
we can include that in the notes. So if you head over to criterioncast.com or moccast.blogspot.com, you can find information on how to reach Melissa there if you have any questions for her. Or you can uh, write an email to us and we will forward it uh, to melissa at mossofcinemacast at gmail.com. Um, so uh, thank you again, Melissa, for joining me. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. And to you, listener, thank you so much for joining in on this episode. If you have the opportunity, please write and review on iTunes. It really helps us gain more listenership. And uh, until next time, goodbye.